More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to today's edition of the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton Show podcast. Welcome in Friday edition, Clay Travis, Buck Sexton Show. Buck has the day off, which means you'll be rolling with me headed into the weekend over the next three hours. Uh, right now, we are scheduled to be joined uh, by my friend from the great state of Texas, Representative Chip Roy, um, to talk about the House Speaker debate and the ensuing fallout at one. We will probably also talk a little bit about his Longhorns and his wife's Texas A&M Aggies, uh, as that is a big rivalry for those of you in the Lone Star State that soon will return next year when both are going to be in the SEC. But I'm headed down to the great state of Texas tomorrow for the Alabama against Texas A&M game. There'll also be a big game going on up in Dallas between Texas and Oklahoma, as many of you get ready for what should be a fun fall weekend. We've got a lot to hit you with during the course of the program. We'll continue to update you uh, on the fight for who should be the House Speaker. As we predicted on this show, I think two days ago, certainly yesterday, uh, Donald Trump has endorsed Representative Jim Jordan from Ohio. You have heard uh, Jim Jordan on this show for years now. Uh, he's a friend to both Buck and myself. Uh, I think he would do a fabulous job as Speaker of the House. Uh, I said that I think he's the right choice because I think he can bring together uh, the MAGA element and the more moderate elements of this uh, Republican Party and help to fight for the things that matter against the Biden administration. Uh, and so we may even hear from Jim today. I don't know. He's been obviously busy, as you can imagine, trying to corral votes. Uh, but I was texting with him earlier, his staff. We may hear from him today. If we don't, I'm confident we'll hear from him next week. Uh, but we'll talk with Chip Roy uh, about the latest in the battle there. Uh, in the primary, Ron DeSantis has finally taken off the gloves. And he is throwing haymaker punches at Donald Trump right now. Are they going to land? Will they matter? We will discuss that uh, in a conjunction with what I think is a really fascinating motion that was filed by Trump in Washington, D.C., that I think has some legitimate basis 
in the law to potentially knock out the criminal charges against him related to what he did while he was president of the United States based on past precedent. We will discuss that as well. But I want to start with a story that I believe goes to the heart of incentives and how when you make bad incentives, you create bad outcomes. And you've heard Buck and me both talk about the issue at the United States southern border. And the reason why so many people are crossing the southern border ultimately boils down to two incentives that exist that so long as they exist are going to continue to drive people to leave their countries and try to come here. One, you can make 20, 30, 40 times as much money if you leave the country that you are in right now and make it to the United States. There are a lot of you listening to me right now that like your jobs. If you could make 25% more money doing a similar job, many of you would say, yeah, I'm leaving. An extra $10,000 a year would make a tremendous difference for you and your family. You would go to a new job. The reason you would go is the incentive of more money. Almost every single person listening to me right now, if I told you that you could make 20 times as much money as you make now, if you would go to Canada, almost all of you would go. I think there are very few of you that would say, you know what? I'm so happy where I am right now in my job that I will turn down 20 times as much money to go to Canada and do a similar potential job. So jobs is one incentive. The other, as we have talked about, is birthright citizenship. If you lived in a country without basic human rights and you wanted to have a family and you knew that if you had a son or daughter in the United States, that son or daughter would immediately become an American, you would be very incentivized also to try to come to the United States. Both of those incentives create the 7 million-plus illegals that have then continued across our southern border and certainly failure to stop anyone from coming into the country, removing barriers, not building walls, all of that provides even more of an incentive for people to come because the risk of not getting in is comparatively low. Okay, we know that goes on at the border. I want to talk about this other story that I have been discussing that I bet a lot of you have not paid much attention to. There's a head football coach, was a head football coach at Michigan State University. It's a guy by the name of Mel Tucker. And I think his story is emblematic of the incentive structure that was created in the wake of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and the Me Too movement. And it is the hashtag Believe All Women. I didn't really hear much about that hashtag until Brett Kavanaugh was framed as he attempted to rise to become a Supreme Court justice. All of the allegations, and I say this as a lawyer who has done criminal law, I dove into, I analyzed, I know Buck felt the same way. They were all complete and total crap. And they were a political hit job on Brett Kavanaugh. And you can say even that was a natural outgrowth of the political hit job that was put in place that they went after Clarence Thomas on. But it really went to the next level because I don't remember during the Anita Hill hearings anybody trying to argue hashtag believe all women. In fact, Joe Biden, who was then the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, to my best recollection, actually gave 
a somewhat supportive, as Democrats go, uh, uh, version of that hearing for Clarence Thomas. That was in a different time now. Joe Biden, of course, would say that Clarence Thomas was guilty the moment he was accused, despite the fact that Joe Biden himself is credibly accused of sexual assault to a far greater degree than almost anyone in the world of politics, and certainly anyone who's sitting on the Supreme Court today. Yes, I'm talking about Tara Reid. But what happened? When you say believe all women, the argument is, well, there's lots of women out there who are sexually assaulted and they don't come forward. And certainly, I believe if you've been a victim of violent crime, you should always come forward. But when you say believe all women, you are by default saying don't believe men. And you are therefore telling larger segments of the American public, many of whom are honest, but also many of whom are dishonest, that if you tell a story, the media is going to be predisposed to believe you and disbelieve the other person solely based on your gender. And that's, I believe, what's happened at Michigan State University. Yesterday, you might have heard me mention this on this show, but let me give you a rough synopsis of what happened. Uh, Michigan State then head football coach Mel Tucker, who has a massive $9.5 million contract, got a $95 million, I believe it was, 10-year contract to coach football at Michigan State University. One of the uh, elite Big Ten football institutions in the country. Football is a big deal there. If you're not a football fan, understand that. So Mel Tucker hires a woman named Brenda Tracy to come talk to his football team about the importance of not committing sexual assault and not putting yourself in positions where you could be accused of committing sexual assault. Basically, he teaches uh, his team, wants to teach his team, how young men should conduct themselves to make sure that they are uh, avoiding of trouble with women while they are members of the Michigan State football team. This woman, Brenda Tracy, comes and speaks, I believe, once spring game uh, at Michigan State. Then they develop a relationship. Mel Tucker, by his own descriptions, has a is married, but is basically staying with his wife until uh, the kids are old enough to graduate from high school. That's public. That's out there. I don't like to dive into anybody's own marriage, but it's known that he and his wife are basically partners in raising their kids until they become uh, uh, graduate from high school, and then they're going to go in their own own way. My understanding is they sleep in different bedrooms, they have limited interaction, but they want to raise their kids to go to adulthood, and then potentially they're going to go in different directions. Again, I don't like to get into marriages, but everybody wants to dive into this marriage because of the situation that has ensued. Both he and Brenda Tracy seem to be interested in each other. They had, according to established record, 27 phone calls that lasted more than 30 minutes. 27 of them. I don't know how many of you out there have engaged in 27 phone calls of over 30 minutes with anyone in the country. I would submit that that's fairly rare. The younger you are, the less likely it is, I actually think. I have not had 27 30-minute-plus phone calls with anyone in the last year. Certainly not my wife. Certainly not my mom. Not even the people who are closest to me. I communicate primarily by text. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, short phone calls. 
they were interested in each other. One particular phone call lasted 36 minutes. Brenda Tracy, Brenda Tracy came out and said, after that 36, well, let me tell you what happened on that 36 minute phone call. Both parties acknowledge that phone sex occurred. 36 minute phone call, phone sex occurs. After that phone call, at some point in time, Mel Tucker decided, you know what? This relationship has gone too far. It's gotten too personal. I'm going to cut this relationship off. And he decided not to have this woman come talk to his team again. He canceled the speaking engagement. When that happened, Brenda Tracy decided that the phone sex months after it happened had actually been non-consensual. This 36-minute phone call that happened, she said she froze and she couldn't hang up and she turned Mel Tucker in to Michigan State University and Michigan State University fired him and they said, we're not going to pay you the $80 million remaining on your contract. Now I said, you might have heard me talk about it on this show because I thought it was so emblematic. I said, this is, this, this story on its face doesn't make sense. You can't have a 36 minute phone call, claim that you froze and couldn't hang up. And then retroactively, months later, say you didn't consent to phone sex and demand that the head football coach get fired. What really happened, I think, is she was, I told you all this, I think she wanted a serious relationship with him. He decided to cut it off. She went fatal attraction, turned him in, and tried to make him pay. Michigan State fired him. When we come back, The text messages came out yesterday. There is now 100% evidence that Brenda Tracy made up this entire story because she wanted to get paid. Her own text messages make this case. Mel Tucker has still lost his job. We've also got the Trevor Bauer situation. I think this is all directly connected to Brett Kavanaugh and the incentives that we build when we say, believe all women, men are liars. I'm going to open up phone lines because I would like to hear from people. 800-282-2882. I think this is a big story because it's your nephews. They are being accused of sexual assault and they're having kangaroo courts on college campuses everywhere. They get no opportunity to defend themselves, and they are being roundly condemned oftentimes when they are, as is the case with Mel Tucker, 100% innocent. What happens when incentives are broken? What can we learn from our failures, and why are so few people willing to speak out and tell the truth? This is a big story I want to dive into here right off the top of the show today. Buck will be back on Monday. Contrary to rumor, he's not playing hooky by spending the day at the gun range. He's got a Mantis X, so he doesn't need to go there to practice. Mantis X, a firearms training system, no ammo, all electronic way to improve your shooting accuracy without leaving the house. It attaches to your firearm like a weapon light, then connects to an app on your phone. Mantis X gives you data-driven, real-time feedback on your technique as it guides you through drills and courses Nearly everyone improves their shooting accuracy within the first 20 minutes. 
It's so effective. It's now being used by members of our Marine Corps, Army, and our Special Forces. The Mantis X is a must-have for every gun owner. It's military-grade technology at an affordable price. Start improving your shooting accuracy today. Get yours at MantisX.com. That's M-A-N-T-I-S-X.com. Clay Travis and Buck Sexton, making sense in an insane world. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go, like, how do I detach from my this idea of, what do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back in. Hour number two, Clay Travis, Buck Sexton Show. Buck is out today. We'll be back with me on Monday. I'll be up, by the way, in New York City on Monday doing the Tunnel of the Towers golf event, helping to raise money for that fabulous organization. And we'll have Senator Rand Paul in office with us. By the way, for those of you listening to Danielle there, I wanted her to be able to get her full story in. We ran right up against the end of the hour. She's going to join us at 2.30 Eastern to react to the Mel Tucker discussion 
the Brenda Tracy lies that have cost Mel Tucker his job, Michigan State. I'll also go ahead and reiterate, if you want to weigh in, I want to be able to take some of your calls on this. Obviously, it is Friday. We take many calls on Friday. 800-282-2882. That's still to come. Joe Biden has spoken uh, and, uh, well, he didn't make much sense, as typically happens whenever Biden speaks. Uh, we'll have some cuts for that going forward with you. But I want to bring in my friend uh, Chip Roy now uh, from the great state of Texas to talk about the situation in the House of Representatives and more. Before we get there, though, your wife's an Aggie. You are a Texas Longhorn fan. Texas plays against Oklahoma this weekend. A&M plays Alabama. Next year, A&M and Texas will reignite the rivalry that is one of the best in all of sports. Is that a good thing or a bad thing for your marriage? <laughs> well, Clay, great to be on, and I'd much rather. I mean, look, of all the weeks for this speaker uh, situation to occur, it has to be the week when we've got, tech, as you said, A&M, Alabama, and uh, OU, Texas. And uh, so I'm going to get to go to neither game, uh, but I'll be able to go with my kids to uh, 4-H and show their goats and all that, which is good. But, uh, look, the rivalry is long overdue to come back. It's been, this is 15 years now of just uh, an absolute, I think, disaster to not have that rivalry game. Uh, but I'm excited about both the games this weekend. Uh, Texas OU, I mean, OU, I think it's going to be out for revenge after getting swatted last year. What was the score? 40 something to seven. 49 zip. You know, beat, 49 zip. Yeah. yeah. Beat down. And, um, so look, I think it's going to depend a lot on Texas, uh, running, running game. You know, what Brooks had, what, 200 and, I don't know, 20 yards or something against Kansas last week. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, Texas is, is better this year. OU's better. So I think it's going to be a good competitive game, but, um, Texas defense is a lot better, and we'll see what happens on the line. I think our our defensive line on the interior is going to match up well against OU on the interior. So we'll see. I think it's going to be, but who wants it more? And you know, A and M Alabama. It's going to depend a lot on the on the backup quarterback there at A and M because what's his name? Uh, what is that? Max Johnson, I think. Whatever the backup is. So that's we'll right. See. Uh, that that'll be an interesting one. Uh, what happens down there? I think that's going to be uh, whether whether Alabama's trying to show up and, and demonstrate they're still legit, or whether A and M's trying to you know, overcome some of the obstacles they've had. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Solid analysis there. I'll be in Aggieland. Can't wait. we got a great affiliate down there carrying the show every single day. Longtime Rush supporters as well. So I look forward to seeing a lot of Bama and Aggie fans. I'll have my kids and my wife with me. All right, Chip, let's, let's dive right into uh, what's going on here uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, I believe we have two uh, announced candidacies. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise have both said that they are open to being uh, the next Speaker of the House. They're going to run for it. Do you suspect that this process will be relatively smooth? Is it going to be a mess? Take us into Capitol Hill and what's been going on since Kevin McCarthy was removed. Yeah, first of all, uh, look, I mean, uh, both Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan are friends of mine. They both are fully announced candidates. Um, you know, look, I have not publicly said who I'm going to support yet. I will, I will tip my... My uh, hat here, you know, I've got a longstanding friendship with Jim. The first thing I ever did uh, when I was a congressman-elect in 2018 was nominate Jim for uh, minority leader against Kevin, actually. Um, but I was one of the ones last week who I opposed the motion to vacate. I did not think that was the right course of action. Um, I thought Kevin had done a pretty good job trying to include all of us. I didn't like all the results. I thought we needed to do a better job on spending and some other issues. But I didn't think we should take that road. But we did. And so now we're in the process of figuring it out. Jim's running. Steve's running. Uh, we're going to have a conference call with Jim this afternoon. And then, you know, I'm going to listen to that, talk to another candidate or two. Uh, Kevin Hearn is thinking about running. And then I'll probably, uh, you know, make my public position later this afternoon about what I'm going to do on endorsements. But here's the bottom line is 
you know, Jim is a solid conservative. Steve's a, a great guy. Um, we're going to have to make a decision as a conference, and we're going to have a letter today that's going to the conference chairwoman, Elise Stefanik, as to how we're going to make our choice. There's a lot of us that say that, look, we've gone to the floor a number of times. Let's figure this out behind closed doors. Let's get 218 of us united behind a new candidate. Let's rally around that speaker, and let's get the job done. We've got to finish the appropriations bills. We've got to secure the border. We've got to check this whole blank check to Ukraine stuff. Uh, and we've got to make sure we do our job and hold the line on spending overall So, uh, and push back on the Biden administration. So that's where I think we're going to head. Uh, but it's going to be a lot of work over the next week because, look, it's hard, to get, it's hard to get 218 to agree on anything. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Do you think that either Jim Jordan or Steve Scalise can get to 218? And just to build off what you said, in your ideal world, it sounds like you'd have a behind-the-scenes kind of closed-door vote, see what the tally is, and then whichever side emerges victorious would be the nominee. The other side would sort of graciously say, okay, I'm not going to stand. Um, and then by the time you get out back on the House floor, everybody's already made their yep. decision instead of having yep. sort of the dirty laundry aired in public. Is that a good uh, representation yeah, of what you would prefer? That's the goal. And, and look, we're, we're at a time we've had some – look, let me just say this. With all due respect, and I've got Democratic friends and I've worked with them at bipartisan bills, you got to do what you can do uh, with what you got. But our Democratic colleagues do not have any real interest in working with us on the issues that most of my constituents care about. I mean, even just last week, one of our Democratic colleagues was carjacked nine blocks from the U.S. Capitol. Do you think they're going to come out for strong, you know, crime control? You know, our borders are wide open, 306,000 encounters in August, 11,000 in Eagle Pass last week, fentanyl killing our kids. Are we going to get border security out of our Democratic colleagues? You know, Ukraine, it's always a blank check, $2 trillion of deficits, no help. So what that means is we have the 221 Republicans, because we lost one because his wife's sick and he resigned, we have 221, and we have to basically figure it out among that group because we're getting no support from our Democratic colleagues for common-sense solutions to those problems. So if we have some disagreements, it ends up getting aired out publicly. I'm not one of the people that thinks that that, that, that is that bad of a thing. Um, we wanted to have a more open Congress, and I actually credit Kevin with working with us to do that. It's why I would not have vacated. But, but it happened, so let's keep moving forward. Let's unite. But look, it's going to be a little open. The point about the behind closed doors as a conference is that I think we need to unite as a conference around one speaker and then come out. Let's select that speaker and let's get busy working. And, and you know, all of the work we do is out in, in public view uh, uh, every day anyway. We're talking to Congressman Chip uh, Roy of Texas. You said you, you want to kind of unite behind closed doors. You haven't, and you also just told us, hey, later this afternoon, you're going to maybe say who you would support. Uh, Donald Trump came out in favor of Jim Jordan. Obviously, different people have taken different perspectives on this. As you sort of read the room, would you assess this as a 50-50 battle? Is it a 60-40 battle? Do you think somebody has more votes on their side than the other right now? How would you assess sort of the vote counting from your perspective? I think that there is, you know, there were a number of people talking about it. The, the two guys got out pretty quickly. I think they're the two leading candidates at the moment. They're the two, they're the only two really fully announced candidates at the moment. And I think they're, I think it's pretty much a 50 50 kind of market at the moment. But I do think there's some wind in Jim's sales. And I think that wind is getting a little stronger. Uh, he's got a lot of support across the conference, despite having been a Freedom Caucus chairman and founder, you know, uh, over the last decade. You know, as Judiciary Committee Chairman, what he's been doing on oversight and Biden, 
He's a great spokesman, et cetera. Um, you know, again, not tipping my, my hat too quickly. I just want to say that I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a still a, a, a probably a toss up today, but all of this weekend, there's going to be a lot of calls getting whipped. And, uh, and so I think we'll, we'll see an interesting, um, debate. Now, here's the trick. If there are 10 or 15 or 20 who are just never going to support person X, whether it's Scalise, whether it's yep. Jim, then we're going to have to figure out a consensus candidate, right? And so those are some of the questions, right? Trump's come in hard for Jim. Will that get us to unanimity, or will that call us, cause us to be a little short? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, same with Steve. So, look, our job is to wrestle through this. Again, I spent the last – I stayed in D.C. till this morning. I kept working. I would have stayed longer, but most had left town. So I've been working, and I'll be working this weekend remotely on how we set up a structure to get this done. Because should we the, need to get it done. Should the rules be changed uh, in terms of how many people can bring a motion to vacate? And for people out there who are uh, not really paying a lot of attention, and I understand it to the uh, nitty-gritty of the uh, of the House of Representatives rules and regulations, can you explain to us what the rule is now and whether you think that should be changed for the next speaker and whether you think it's likely to be changed? Correct. So uh, the motion to vacate is a tool that has existed in the United States House of Representatives since Thomas Jefferson's manual for over 200 years. It was pulled out under spe- uh, Speaker Pelosi's tenure, and it was removed to only the leader of each conference, which, of course, doesn't make much sense, right? Because, you know, you're pretty much just leaving it in the, ch- the tools of the, of the minority leader to go try to go after the speaker. The reason it was always there was simple. It was so that any one member can protect his or her right to be able to be heard in the conference. It's a majoritarian body. That means you pretty much get steamrolled by the majority, except for that one tool to be able to say, hold on, Mr. Speaker, you're not accounting for us. You're not letting us have a seat at the table. You're doing deals behind closed doors. You're doing, you know, these multi-trillion dollar deals that you drop on the floor at the last minute and jam us. That's the one tool we have. So last year in the speaker's debate in January, it was one of the things we fought to restore. Kevin, to his great credit, agreed to restore it. We had, I think, a very successful first six months getting good bills passed, strong border security, strong defense bill. Obviously, last week, the motion to vacate got played. I wouldn't have played it. But that's kind of the price of having the, the, the system be more democratized. I think we must keep it. I want to be very clear. If I end up supporting Jim Jordan, which is very likely after I have a call this afternoon that I got to hold on to, just because he's my guy and he was my guy in 2018, the first thing I did in Congress, doesn't mean I shouldn't be consistent that I think the motion to vacate needs to stay there. In other words, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. I believe it's an important tool. It's messy. Democracy's messy. We don't have things like recall petitions in this country. We don't do things the same way as parliamentary systems and so forth. But we do need a tool for members of Congress to be able to flex their muscle and say, wait a minute, we don't like the way things are going. You know, we can debate those rules. Maybe next year we can. But I, for one, believe we need to keep this rule uh, through the rest of, remainder of this Congress. And we can we can always debate that next year as we do every year. Eighteen members of the House uh, Republican Caucus are in districts that Joe Biden won. I think that's the correct, correct. number in 2020. So those are flip districts. Uh, you obviously have a wide variety of perspectives inside of the Republican House. 
I, I talked about this on the air recently, and I'm curious your analysis. I don't remember any period of time where there's been more people screaming rhino all the time. Anytime you're yeah. on the opposite side, it's kind of like sports, right? I mean, I'm used to it, but yeah. if you're not on the same team as someone else, then immediate, on any one issue, immediately you get called a rhino. Is that healthy? Is it uh, good for Republicans? Because I don't hear Democrats rip each other publicly as often as I do Republicans. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but it seems that's the case. And how much of whatever decision is made now really has to be focused on the fact that those 18, in order to win, uh, have a different uh, obligation and responsibility to their constituents than somebody who's in a hard-right district that doesn't have any risk at all. It seems like there's not a lot of discussion about the disparate treatment uh, and responsibilities of different constituencies, right? It's a big group. Sure. And let me just say this. I mean, one thing, again, credit to Kevin. We had a lot of us sitting at the table who got to know each other across ideological spectrum, which we would not done as much of. Just this morning, Brian Fitzpatrick, who's probably by voting record our most left side of the Republican conference guy. And I'm obviously pretty far on the right side voting record-wise, if not, you know, top two, three, four. And we, we're good friends. We get along. This morning, we jointly led this letter I told you about, which is going to have close to 100 signatures on it, saying, hey, let's, let's decide this uh, as a conference with 218 as a family and then come to the floor. There are times when you can do that and agree. I've got great friendships with people across the spectrum. Um, and I respect their – we have to represent our constituents. They have to respect that for me, I'm going to throw down over the border. I'm not yep. going to give another dollar to Alejandro Mayorkas if the border is not secure because I'm in Texas and we're getting absolutely crushed. So they respect that. So, you know, I'm good with that. I actually think robust debate is good. I love it. I, I You know, people get out there and call me a rhino. I, it does not bother me in the slightest bit. Uh, I'm a rhino because I uh, endorse Ron DeSantis. Oh, I'm a rhino, right? I'm a rhino because I didn't vacate Kevin McCarthy. So, okay, all but eight members of the Republican conference that are rhinos. Uh, including large numbers, the vast majority of the Freedom Caucus. It's all nonsense, but you know what? It's an open you know, debate. People are going to get out there, especially in the world of social media. But here's the one thing that I think is where it gets a little dangerous. Last week, a bunch of people were calling into my office and pretty threatening going after my interns and my front office people, good kids. And they were doing it because somebody had said, Chip Roy is a turncoat and he's now for Ukraine funding. Well, hold on a second. A, even if that were true, that's not a reason to like just light our office on fire. But B, it's not true. I'm very skeptical of even another dollar to Ukraine. But what I said was, if there's going to be Ukraine funding, I want border security, period, like end of story. And then that got translated as Chip will sell out on Ukraine in order to get border. And then people started calling in with pretty vile attacks on some of the people that are, you know, kids in my front office. So that caused me, I, I kind of lost it on an interview with my friend Steve Dates and told them to kiss my bottom in a more vulgar way and, and, and another expletive or two because I was really angry at what they were doing to my kids. You can say whatever you want about me. I don't give a crap. But, you know, everybody needs to just dial it back a notch in terms of how you're engaging with other humans. Uh, express your opinion and then, you know, uh, take a chill pill and, and let's figure out how this plays out. Enjoy the games. Have fun with the kids. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Have fun at College Station, man. Say hi to everybody there. Take care. Will do. That's uh, Congressman Chip Roy. Awesome dude. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that, react to that interview when we come back in a sec. But our friend Dutch Mendenhall, co-founder, CEO of Rad Diversified, organizing an impactful wealth summit this December in Tampa. 
the Invest Wealth Summit, two full days, Saturday and Sunday, December 1st and 2nd. You'll hear from a variety of speakers on a range of topics, including my buddy Buck Sexton. Uh, Tucker Carlson will also be there, as well as a dozen others, including uh, Lisa Booth and Amy Vaughn. If you want to learn how to create financial freedom and security for your future, then you want to be at the Invest Wealth Summit. Get your tickets online at investwealthsummit.com today. That's Invest wealthsummit.com dutch mendenhall he's a visionary leader in real estate investing and author of a book we mentioned on this program quite a lot money shackles learn how to diversify your portfolio without relying solely on wall street explore alternative investments gain access to unique opportunities and hidden gems you can see buck along with dutch mendenhall tucker carlson lisa booth and many more expand your investment horizons safeguard your financial future one more time December 2nd and 3rd in Tampa, Florida, investwealthsummit.com. Clay Travis and Buck Sexton on the front lines of truth. Welcome back in the final hour of the week, 14 hours up, 15th hour beginning now. Um, Hope all of you are having a good Friday so far. Open phone lines, 800-282-2882. Buck is out today. He'll be back with me on Monday. Uh, and we'll be breaking down the continued battle over who's going to be the Speaker of the House. I think it's going to end up being Jim Jordan, who has been endorsed by Donald Trump. It appears Donald Trump is not going to be involved uh, very much, at least right now, in the Speaker battle. Uh, Jim Jordan uh, and Scalise are going right now to be the two contestants, contenders for that job. We talked a lot in the second hour with... Chip Roy, a uh, congressman from Texas, who put into context what he expected that battle to be like. And I would encourage you, as always, to go download the podcast. Make sure you don't miss a moment. And you can ensure that you can take the show with you anywhere in the country or around the world. Tens of millions of you downloading it. You get a lot of unique access on that podcast as well, including both Carol Markowitz and Tudor Dixon, who are part of the Clay and Buck Podcast Network. There are going to be additional members of that podcast network in the days, the weeks, and months ahead, and I think you are going to enjoy all of that content. So go ahead and sign up. It's free. You can do it on any podcast company. Also, always want to tell you, the iHeartRadio app is pretty fantastic. You can listen to this show straight from the app anywhere in the country or around the world as well. Okay, so uh, we started off the show talking about this crazy story out of Michigan where Michigan State head coach uh, Mel Tucker has been fired, despite the fact that he was engaged in a consensual relationship, did nothing improper. All that can be alleged is that he engaged in phone sex once in a 36-minute phone call. That a lot of you still want to weigh in on, and we're going to take some calls from you guys on that. But as we went to break, I teased that, There hasn't been a lot of discussion about the motion that Donald Trump has filed in Washington, D.C., arguing that he has essentially presidential immunity from any of the charges that are being brought by Jack Smith, alleging that he is responsible for January 6th related incidents. Now, I'm going to try to simplify this. I'll also allow anybody who wants to weigh in to make uh, arguments or ask questions about this. I went and I read this motion. I actually think Trump's going to win on this motion. Now, I understand what are we sitting at here right now, October the 6th. 
Trump is scheduled to begin trial in March. This is, I think, maybe the most significant legal filing that we have seen so far from Trump's attorneys in this case. And essentially what they are arguing is that Supreme Court precedent has been established in civil cases that presidents can't be sued for presidential-related activities in a civil manner. Now, let me try to simplify this as best as best I can. Richard Nixon obviously resigned as president of the United States, and there was a question as to whether Nixon could be held civilly liable for his behavior as president of the United States. And the Supreme Court said no. Trump is now arguing, and let me explain sort of the rationale why that would have existed as it did. If you are engaged in the work as president of the United States, for you to be civilly liable for the decisions that you made as president of the United States would open an absolute Pandora's box. You may think that Joe Biden is making disastrous decisions at the border. I do. But if suddenly you could sue and bankrupt Joe Biden because you disagree with the choices that he is making as president of the United States having to do with the border or student loan relief or any other thing, you can disagree with him, but those are political decisions and the job of the president of the United States is to constantly be making political decisions. If you believe, and this is why I always say precedent's important, if you believe that Donald Trump shouldn't build a wall, you shouldn't be able to bankrupt Donald Trump by suing him because his political imperative is to try to build more uh, walls at the border, right? Whatever side, and I'm just using the border as an example because it's a contentious uh, uh, issue right now in the political realm. But the Supreme Court has said, hey, you shouldn't be able to bankrupt Joe Biden over the decisions he makes at the border or Donald Trump at the decisions he makes at the border. Democrat, Republican, that's the job of the president. And I think all of you out there can understand that. You would say, oh, yeah, makes total sense. The president of the United States has to decide lots of contentious issues. The idea that he would be civilly liable for the political decisions that he's making as president of the United States That's a really bad precedent to set, which is why, again, Richard Nixon wasn't able to be sued in a civil context for the decisions he made relating to his presidential office. It's never been tested in a criminal court before because we have never seen a president charged with a criminal violation like Trump is being charged with. Reading it, I actually think Trump's lawyers are 100% right here. I think as a, if you follow the precedent, again, to explain to everybody, civil is money, right? As a general rule, if you're filing a civil lawsuit and you're suing someone, you're typically trying to get monetary damages in some way. That's simplifying it, but most of the time that's what's being sought. So civil penalties are typically money. Criminal penalties are, hey, we're trying to put you in prison. Or we're trying to restrict your freedoms in some way, typically not dollar-wise. And the easiest way to describe this is O.J. Simpson, all of you remember, not guilty in a criminal court of the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson 
and of Ronald Goldman, the waiter who came to the home that night, even though I think the evidence supports, as many of you do, that O.J. Simpson was guilty of murder. The jury in L.A. said he's not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, and so O.J. Simpson to this day remains free. But he was then sued as a wrongful death lawsuit civilly and found responsible. The standards are different in those courts, beyond a reasonable doubt, in uh, the... Uh, in the, in the criminal context, preponderance of the evidence in a civil context. But O.J. was effectively bankrupted by the uh, civil judgment. They took all of his possessions. They sold them. Now the challenge, and you're like, well, how does O.J. have time to play golf and everything else? He can't touch his pension as a part of that settlement. So he's still O.J.'s still getting his NFL pension, but he basically has to spend every dollar every year or else that money, if he had assets that he was building up, would go to his creditors, the Nicole Brown Simpson and the Ronald Goldman family, because O.J. was found crim- not criminally liable, but civilly liable for wrongful death. Okay, reason why I bring that up is the civil decision is not 100% precedent for the criminal decision. But it's pretty compelling. I think that a court that looks at that Nixon civil precedent will be hard-pressed to argue that Trump was not acting within his presidential duties while he was in office relating to everything surrounding to January 6th. I think that's an incredibly compelling argument. But why does it matter, you might say? Well... I imagine that the lower circuits, because they are likely to be made up of Democrats, might disagree with that opinion. But eventually that's going to reach the Supreme Court. And I think the Supreme Court is likely to set the precedent that trying to put presidents in prison for political decisions that they make while they're in office is not permitted. I think there's a decent chance that this Jack Smith case could end up null and void based on the argument that the Trump people are making in this case. At a minimum, it may very well forestall the case even starting as the appellate process works its way through the court. Because I would argue for you, you can't try this case until you've determined whether the case could even be brought in the first place. Now, this may not implicate... It would implicate Atlanta as well, by the way, because that's basically a similar uh, version of the case that's being brought in um, in D.C. It wouldn't necessarily implicate the bookkeeping case in New York City, although I think that's a garbage case. And it might not necessarily implicate all of the case in South Florida because that case still relies to some extent on the fact that Trump was argued to have possession of documents and not have been entitled to have possession of those documents after he was president of the United States. Now, the Trump people would still argue, well, the the, the precedent should apply to the post-presidency, too. That's a more challenging decision to me. But all of the Jack Smith issues directly implicate Trump while he was still in presidential office, and I think the precedent of that being under presidential powers is actually a compelling one based on the case that the Trump team has just made in a motion that they filed in Washington, D.C. I don't know that very many people are going to talk about it, 
I went through the New York Times this morning. They didn't have to, at least unless I missed it in the paper this morning. I didn't see a single article about it. It was buried on like page seven or eight of the Wall Street Journal today. I actually think this is a fairly significant legal argument that Trump has made that has a decent chance of being uh, the law when or if this gets to the Supreme Court. So I think that's worth paying attention to in a big way because I think it could go directly to whether this case in March is able to be adjudicated before we actually get to the election in 2024. Again, it would implicate Atlanta. It would potentially implicate South Florida less so, would not necessarily be implicated by the New York City case. But I'm not hearing very many people talk about it. I think it is a very compelling argument that the Trump team has made on that particular case. All right, we come back. Uh, DeSantis is going after Trump. I'll play some of that audio for you directly. He's taken off the gloves. I told you that I would update you on that. Uh, also, we'll continue to take some of your calls to close out the rest of the hour and take us into the weekend. I appreciate all of you who are hanging out with us as we are continuing to roll throughout the course of the program. But I want to tell you, as we had to break here and uh, get ready uh, for a lot of your calls and more of the DeSantis versus Trump battle, Start earning high-yield returns in a low-yield market by investing in Phoenix Capital Group's corporate bonds. You choose your investment amount, term limit, earn returns from 9 to 13% annually with Phoenix Capital's domestic energy asset bonds. Bonds have been filed with the SEC and are independently audited. Phoenix Capital buys energy royalties previously reserved for institutional investors, now accessible to you, the savvy investor. Phoenix Capital Group disrupting the traditional energy industry through their proprietary offerings yielding up to 13% a year. Learn more by downloading the Phoenix Group's free investment guide today at phxonair.com. For a private investor meeting, visit phxonair.com for an appointment with Matt Willer, Managing Director of Capital Markets. You should only invest if you can afford to bear the risk of loss. Before making investment decisions, you should carefully consider and review all risks involved. Visit phxonair.com today for more info. Truth seeking. Reality telling. The Clay Travis and Buck Sexton Show. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it would have been Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, 
the warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose Podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back in, Clay Travis, Buck Sexton Show. A lot of you want to weigh in, but Danielle reached out. Uh, she's a listener of the show. Danielle, I'll let you describe. You are a rape survivor. You have helped to uh, bring awareness to these issues. Uh, tell us where you work, what you do, and your reaction to this story. Uh, yes, sir. Thank you for having me on the program. I really appreciate that. Um, I actually am a rape survivor uh, activist and advocate and have been for the last 15 years. Um, I stepped forward as a named victim of Richard Gilmore, who was the jogger rapist. And since then, that was 2008. And since then, I pretty much have dedicated my life to working on issues surrounded uh, around sexual assault. So uh, in various states, I've changed over uh, a dozen different laws and have worked on the rape kit backlog, um, have worked nationally with the Joyful Heart Foundation and with RAIN. So I've got quite a resume, and I currently, uh, in Oklahoma, belong to uh, the Governor's Sexual Assault Kit Task Force and am still changing laws between Oregon and Oklahoma on different related issues, you know, surrounding sexual assault and the sex offender registry and, and, and things like that that actually affect me directly. Well, thank you for all the work that you're doing. And certainly the rape kit backlog that exists all over this country is indefensible and should be rectified. So I appreciate all the work you're doing there and the bravery for Absolutely. speaking out. Do you know, Brenda Tracy, what do you think of this story based on the text messages and all of the details that have come out? You know, um, I do know Brenda Tracy. I um, actually uh, worked with her in Oregon, and we both actually served on uh, the governor's uh, sexual assault kit task force in Oregon as well. And we both worked on that legislation. Um, so I, I don't have a close relationship with Brenda. Um, but I definitely have been following the story uh, very closely just because I, I, I do know Brenda. Um, I guess 
um, my first question, you know, when it first broke um, about what was happening, uh, the text messages, I think, was to me was the red flag with the deleted text messages on both sides. Um, the first thing that came to my mind is that we really do need to know what was in those text uh, messages to be able to prove, you know, one side or the other. And I think with the release of those, I think we're getting a little bit more of a clear picture as to the, the relationship and possible other relationships with others as, as well. And in general, your position would be women who lie are the enemy of true victims, right? Women, regardless, this is the worst thing that you could do. You want everybody to speak forward, but people have to be honest. Uh, right, and and I this case I think is uh, by far still uh, not over and done. Welcome back in Clay Travis Buck Sexton Show. Appreciate all of you hanging out with us. We're rolling through the program. You might have heard at the end of the first hour we were having a discussion about the Mel Tucker situation at Michigan State, uh, and my argument was I can't believe this isn't receiving more attention than it is, uh, and we had a, a rape survivor. Danielle Tudor, who does uh, a lot of sexual assault advocacy all over the country, call in to discuss. We finished off the first hour. She wasn't able to finish her story. So, uh, Danielle, I appreciate you calling back in. I wanted to make sure that we got an opportunity for you to talk to uh, to this audience. Um, it appears, based on the text messages from Brenda Tracy, that she has been lying about some many, I would even say, aspects of the story that she has told surrounding Mel Tucker. And you sent out a message to the show, and you said as someone who works in rape advocacy, who is a sexual assault survivor yourself, that one of the worst things that can happen out there is for women to lie about being victims. It's a small percentage of the overall numbers out there, but it has an, uh, a, a large reach because it calls into question others. What have you seen in your experience about advocating for women as it pertains to falsehoods, which are a small percentage, but what the impact is, a lot of women uh, don't get believed because of some women who lie. Right. You know, um, I, you know, the court of public opinion, unfortunately, can be really brutal uh, for a sexual assault or, or rape victim. And unfortunately, I, I think uh, that's probably one of the biggest reasons that someone won't come forward is because then there's all these questions that are asked. So um, it, certainly I, I'm saddened by, you know, what is happening, you know, right now. And I, I, I think it pushes victims, you know, from engaging in the process even further. Um we know that Brenda's original story and what brought her to the forefront uh, from the beginning, we know that story is true. So I, I think with what's happening right now, um, we have to let the system do its job. And I, I, I think that's probably what's playing out right now that, that we're all watching with you when know, you, the allegations when you hear, and then the by text the way, messages. And, yeah, the text messages, which I read some of. Yeah. When you hear yeah. someone say that they didn't consent to phone sex and that is why they believe that a coach needs to be fired to me when i hear someone make that argument that isn't sexual assault right i mean i don't think by any stretch of the imagination at least not that i've heard uh engaging in phone sex would not be sexual assault you're in different places now maybe if somebody says hey 
if you hang up the phone, I'm going to fire you, and you're never going to be able to work again, and so you have to stay on the phone and listen to me. There's no allegation that that took place. Maybe you could make an argument that that is something that deserves significant punishment. But when you're talking about a 36-minute phone call and you don't raise the issue until you have a speech canceled on the university campus and it seems like Mel Tucker is trying to dial back the relationship, to me it delegitimizes all the work that you're doing on behalf of people that are actual sexual assault victims. Am I am I crazy for analyzing it that way? Well, I would say with the with the phone sex, if it was unwanted, um, I, I do think that that could be considered sexual assault. Um, but, you know, you raise other questions, and I think this is where the system is going to have to step in and, and kind of figure this out. I, you're talking to adults that are both, um, I believe, in their 50s. So um, we're not talking young people here. We're, we're, we're talking consenting adults that um, had some type of relationship that we know of. But there just seems to be a lot that's unclear, I, I think, as to how this all progressed. Um, but uh, definitely, I, I think it's something that we are going to have to let the system work out. But, um, you know, I've heard people say, well, why didn't you hang up? Or why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And you have to realize that those are a lot of questions that survivors are asked. And uh, certainly in, in my case, there was no question about it with a, a stranger rape. But still, um, you know, there are those questions, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I run that way? Why, You know, so there's already a lot of self-doubt. But um, with the situation uh, with Brenda, um, I, I think what we're seeing now is that, you know, all the, the different aspects are, are coming out. And as adults, I think they, they both need to take responsibility. But from what I understand from Tucker's contract, um, anything that could be reflect or, or reflect badly on the university that they're saying that they can dismiss him for that. So, um, that is certainly, I think, something that he and the university will end up working out. Um, but I, it, it's just such a when a you dicey, hear when you hear yeah, yeah when you hear that somebody has sent text messages saying that they're after money, and then they it, also it makes me cringe. Yeah, it makes me cringe because it, that's it, the number one thing that women get attacked when they're, uh, especially when the person, the man involved, has money or fame or power. The number one attack, I'm sure you've seen this, the number one attack is she's only in it for the money. So when right. there are texts from Brenda Tracy that clearly suggest she's after Mel Tucker's money and reference how big his contract was, that is, uh, I mean, I would imagine, I mean, you, you speak to what, what that does, but that just further legitimizes in many people's minds that that's the first go-to attack anytime a celebrity or a famous or rich person is accused of wrongdoing. Right, right. I, I think um, as an advocate and activist, I think it's always good to always check your first motivation for doing it. And um, I can say that uh, I've actually taken a second job, or actually not a second job, I was retired, but I actually took a job so that I could fund my advocacy. So yeah. um, I, I think it's always important, you know, uh, to check, you know, why why we're doing something and, and why we're in it and, and what your goal is. Um, and certainly I, I think that's only uh, something that Brenda can answer for herself. 
Um, and I, 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 unfortunately, this does push victims back into the shadows because they're going to be afraid to speak up. But I, I really don't think that that's what Brenda ever envisioned or would ever want either. So, um, but, you know, unfortunately, because it is becoming very high profile and for the work that she does at the national level, it, it really kind of puts a spotlight on it. And, and I hate to see that happen. I, I hate to see what's happening for the coach. I hate to see what's happening for Brenda. Um, and I, I really hope that in the hearing process and then in the investigation, they can kind of come to some sort of agreement as to what happened there and, and what, who's responsible for what and be able to kind of get this out of the, the public aspect of it. All right, last question for you, and I appreciate you calling in and sharing your perspective. This is something that I think everybody could agree on. There are a tremendous amount of rape kits that are not being tested. A monstrous backlog is my understanding. What can you tell us about the numbers that are outstanding, the number of these kits that are never tested, that are never analyzed? Where are we? What needs to happen for that to change? You know, uh, Joyful Heart Foundation has been uh, a big leader in testing the backlog. And there are, oh, at last count, I'm not 100% sure, so don't quote me on this, but there are over half the states, I think, have eliminated, actually, their rape kit backlog and have completed reform so that it won't happen again in that state. And certainly we did that in Oregon and here in Oklahoma. I actually moved here um to get away from my offender when I knew he was going to be released from prison. But in doing that, I actually brought rape kit reform here to Oklahoma. So um, our attorney general, Gettner Drummond, uh, oversees the task force. And we are we're we're getting closer here in Oklahoma to full rape kit reform. And uh, like I said, a lot of states have already reached that. We've got some that haven't done anything, but those are, are getting fewer and fewer. So as you see us tackling the rape kit backlog and, and getting success in that area, then you start to look at other laws. And one of those is the statute of limitations on rape, both with DNA and without DNA. And that's where cases like this, what's happening with Brenda, that's where it makes my job a little bit harder. So, um, and I'm going for some changes in the statute of limitations on rape here in Oklahoma in the next legislative session. So uh, when you get the, that high profile of, well, we don't think, you know, she's being truthful, it, it really reflects, you know, on us really boots on the ground that are working really hard and, and diligently, you know, to change and, and make that landscape a little bit uh, easier for survivors to actually navigate and, and try and get justice. Thank so, you for the call. Um, that's a lot of what I do. Thank you for the talk, uh, the call and, and shedding light on this. She's Danielle Tudor, rape survivor, sexual assault advocate. I wanted to make sure we got you an opportunity to tell your full story. After the first hour, we didn't get it complete. Thank you very much. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No doubt. Look, uh, holiday gift. Might sound crazy, right? We're sitting here early October. A lot of you probably just cringe. You're like, oh, holidays already. Yes. A lot of you have to figure out what to get as gifts, too. A lot of times, very difficult to get gifts. I, nobody knows what to get me. If you're a dad out there, if you're a granddad, how many ties you got? How many sweaters you got? How many books that you never even had any interest in reading? Nobody knows what to get an awful lot of men. How about preserving memories forever? 
That's a pretty good gift. That's what Legacy Box does. Uh, look, they can hook you up right now. They can get you ready in time for the holidays. More than a million families have benefited from Legacy Box's expertise. All those old VHS tapes, all those old photos, all that old in real physical condition. You know, VHS tapes weren't made to last forever. They degrade and disintegrate in a hurry. How many of your family's memories are on those old VHS tapes, those camcorders that dad or mom carried around, took photos, took videos of you sitting around uh, the Christmas tree? How many of those great moments are you worried won't exist for your kids, for your grandkids to be able to see? Legacy Box will hook you up right now, and they can give you a Christmas present for everyone, which is your family's memories preserved forever. If you go online right now at LegacyBox.com slash Clay, you can get 40% off their normal prices and have a brand new present for a member of your family. It's tough to shop for. Preserve those family memories forever. Website, LegacyBox.com slash Clay. 40% off the normal prices. LegacyBox.com slash Clay. Download and use the new Clay and Buck app. Listen to the program live. Catch up on any part of the show you might have missed. Stay current with what Clay and Buck are saying on TV. Find the Clay and Buck app in your app store and make it part of your day. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny. The warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. 